another week, another podcast, another opportunity to talk about a sword and sandal and monster movie here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio and welcome to the band Five Fingers with Parasol. They're a twisterific surf swing band based out of Castellon, Spain. This is the song Malaguena Stomp from their album that came out this year, Sayatovie Una Longboard, which is Spanish for if I had a longboard. Honestly, if I had a longboard, I'd have no idea what to do with it. I love the instrumental surf music that I play here on the show. I have no idea how to surf. Never even touched a surfboard in my life. So I'm going to live vicariously through the surf bands. Big thanks to Five Fingers with Parasol for letting us play their music here on the show. Now, I said this is Sword and Sandals and Monster Month here on Monster Kid Radio. September Sword and Sandals. We've got another Peplum horror movie lined up this week. I want to get to that here in a second. Before I do that, though, just a quick note. A lot of people have been talking on Facebook about what happened with Basil Gogos. Or is it Basil Gogos? I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard it pronounced both ways. It's one of those names that you read, and I never really had a chance to say it out loud because I've never really had an opportunity to meet the man. I heard he was an amazing guest at all the conventions that he would go to. Unfortunately, Mr. Gogos has passed on, and... I'm going to regret that I never had an opportunity to meet him in person, although I've got so much of him in my Monster Kid DNA. I mean, the man's work for Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine is iconic. It is part of the reason why that magazine lives on today in the hearts of so many Monster Kids. People are still discovering old issues based on that artwork. The way he used light, the way he used color, the way he inspired so many other monster kids and artists after him. It's impressive. It's amazing. And we were so lucky to be graced with the art of Gogos over the years. So rest in peace, Mr. Gogos. Because I never had an opportunity to meet him or have any conversations with him or even really about him here on the show, I don't know if I'm really equipped to talk about him in depth. If anybody has any memories or thoughts about the passing of Mr. Gogos, please feel free to call it in at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Okay. As for the show this week we have got hercules in the haunted world from 1961 from director mario bava i'm not doing this by myself the format here at monster kid radio is that i always bring at least one guest in and this time we've got two i've got rod barnett from the nashi cast the bloody pit of rod and a handful of other places you can find him online and we have dominique lemzies an oregon-based author lovecraftian writer aficionado of batman and somebody you can find out more about at the university of the bazaar at the university of the bazaar.wordpress.com go check them out when you're done listening to this conversation about hercules in the haunted world which we're going to get to right after this
Ursus. Mighty Ursus. Of all the supergiants who ever shook the world, this was the mightiest. No power on Earth could stand up to this superhuman until he faced the pagan goddess of the island of Sin. Mighty Ursus. Spectacular in color. Let's prepare for a landing, right? Okay. In a 40G gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The Galliot. Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salus. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. Fright fans, Dr. Gangrene here for Scary Monsters Magazine, here to welcome you to go ape wild with their latest issue, number 106, the Apocalypse issue. Now, this issue is packed with more goodies than Carl Denham's Ocean Liner, including a look at Pierre Boulle's novel, The Planet of the Apes, and the franchise it spawned. Simeon Cinema in the 60s, the King Kong films through the years, and a special sneak peek at filmmakers Joseph Schultz and Jim Davidson's latest endeavor, Denim's Giant Monster, a loving recreation of the famous Kong Broadway sequence, filmed stop-motion style. Plus, yours gruelly interviews Scary Monsters cover artist Scott Jackson discussing his work in illustration, comics, and more. All this and much more is packed into this issue, including an interview with Plaid Stallion's founder, Brian Hyler, North Coast's horror hosts, the terror from the Daves invade Roswell, Frankenstein, Bella Lugosi, the Brainiac, and more. So stop monkeying around and head to a new stand near you for Scary Monsters number 106. It's more fun than you can shake a bunch of bananas at. 
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Foreboding place of no return. Hercules in the Haunted World. An unearthly world of eternal darkness. Ghostly kingdom of the undead demons of death. On these horrifying, hideous creatures of evil, Hercules and his friend must save their doomed kingdom and the women they love. Hercules wants something. He always wants something. But when I return, I'll never leave you again. This I promise you. Hercules and Theseus battle treacherous, monstrous forces of evil in the forbidden depths of a haunted underworld. The stone you are made, and by stone you shall be destroyed! I will serve you as your slave as long as you live. Save me, I beg Stop! You. It's a trap! Don't trust the shadows of Hades! Nefarious, fiendish Lyco, mastermind of terror, must be destroyed. Reg Park as the heroic Hercules in the haunted world. Swords, sandals, and monsters. That's what we're doing this month on Monster Kid Radio. And, you know, Christopher Lee is always going to have a home here on the show. So if you can blend the two, why not? Let's talk about Hercules in the haunted world with a couple of people who enjoy this movie a lot. Uh, starting at my virtual left... <laughs> I have Dominique Lamsey's. Welcome back to the show. How you doing? Hello. Hi. How is everybody? And uh, the other guy, I'm not doing this by myself. Dominique's not doing it by herself. We've got Rod Barnett, the man from the Menashi cast and a handful of other things going on. Rod, welcome back to MKR. Glad to be here. It's been a little while since I've had you on, sir. We need to you know, finish up doing those Antonio Margariti science fiction films at some point. Oh, man, I would be glad to. Those movies are so much fun. Even the... Uh even the uh, the more boring one is still actually worth talking about. Oh, they look great. And, and and speaking of looking great, this movie we're talking about this week on Monster Kid Radio, Hercules in the Haunted World. It's got a handful of other titles. I, I got to ask you, too, what is your background in this movie? How did you first discover it? It came on one of those big 50-movie mega-packs of public domain movies. Okay. I got as a Christmas gift. Um, I knew vaguely that had Christopher Lee in it, but like everything has Christopher Lee in it, so it <laughs> was just something that kind of like floated in my nether region of stuff to watch. So I sat and I watched it when I got this collection, and I didn't know it was a Mario Bava because I'm huge, huge Mario Bava fan because I love art direction movie stuff, but I didn't know. And then I saw that he directed it 
when I watched that and watched the movie, and it was just like, oh my god, this is going to be great, and that and I watched it, and of course it was. Um, well, it's a movie that I'd read about uh, long before I got to see it, which is true of a lot of movies. I knew enough about what I was going to see when I finally saw it, but I actually held off on seeing it, at least in total, until it actually came out on DVD in uh, 2002, the Phantom DVD that is, is still the, the best way to see it right now, even though, man, 15 years have aged that DVD a good bit. So that's how I first came across it. I read about it first because uh, it was a Mario Baba film and therefore was something that I must see, see now, and then had to hold <laughs> off until, luckily, I guess luckily I held off until that DVD because at least I got to see it widescreen and uh, pretty darn colorfully the first time I saw it. I have to admit, I don't have a lot of background with Baba. I know very little about you know his work, that sort of thing. I've seen a handful of his movies, of course, but I just don't know as much about you know the man, his background, where he came from. And you two seem to have a, a better grasp on Baba. Well, his movies are pretty. That's I mean, <laughs> for me, it kind of. I mean, I, I enjoy them. I like what he does, but they're they're super super pretty. And, you know, in the in the age of everybody, because this was Italy, so everybody started doing the Giallo films, and I'm not a fan of Giallo films, but this was most of what Italy was exporting at the time. So for Baba to pop up with Black Sabbath and Black Sunday and this movie, and even like Planet of the Vampires, which is the most gothic sci-fi movie in the history of ever, it's it's it made me very happy. It still makes me very happy. Well, I am a I am a massive Baba fan, and Dominique, I'm curious if you're not a fan of Giallo's. I'm, I'm assuming you have at least seen Blood and Black Lace, which is kind of Baba's. Uh, some people call it kind of a proto Giallo, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of the kickoff of them. Do you have you, have you seen Blood and Black Lace? I have seen Blood and Black Lace, and Blood and Black Lace proves that miracles can happen, and that Baba can perform them because it is the only Giallo I actually like. <laughs> it's an amazing picture and i'm curious to ask uh what is it about the giallo that puts you off is it i'm assuming it's uh the violence the often rather sticky and gory violence honestly actually for me what i dislike about giallo it's what I call the Sherlock Holmes story structure, so that you're going through the whole story and it's supposed to be a mystery story, but there is nothing to engage the audience at all until the very end when it's just like, oh, this person randomly did it out of nowhere. Um, the violence doesn't bother me so much. The um, TNA does. But one thing I do kind of like about Giallo is what I call creative kills. If you look at like Suspiria, everybody dies in this horn is a fantastic way that looks really cool but there isn't really a plot to justify it and that's actually what bugs me about Giallo. and blood and black lace actually has basically a plot it's kind of thin in places but it is a plot and that's actually why i like it well if uh, your main objection to giallos are that uh, there's really no way to suss out who the murderer may be before it's actually revealed by the story itself or by the film i should say yeah, that's a lot of giallos, but it's not all of them. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll have to uh, compile a list of uh, of giallos. As a matter of fact, I can name you one right now that if uh, you've never seen. Um, by the way, I don't consider I wouldn't consider Suspiria to be a giallo. It's a horror, but uh, the okay. movie that the movie that Dario Argento made right before that called Deep Red is definitely a giallo. And if mm -hmm. you're 
And if you're quick enough, if you keep your eyes open, <laughs> you can figure it out. But the trick okay. is, I've only ever met one person who caught the most obvious clue on their first viewing, and they were seeing it on the big screen. So, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're not bothered by the, uh, shall we say, Baroque violence, then uh, <laughs> I guess then, uh, yeah, I can definitely recommend some giallos that might point you in a fun direction. Okay, yeah, shoot me a list. I'm willing, because I cool. still watch Argento films all the time, so even though I don't like 90% of them, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> got to try. You got to try. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. You've been listening to Giallo Kid Radio. Thank you for tuning No. <laughs> 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 oh, first, first no, it's all first connected. It's road. all connected. Yeah, first side road. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all connected in a way. And you know, we're talking about you mentioned Argento and Dominique said it her <laughs> her Bava films look pretty and you know, there's a connection there. Uh I think Bava has a, a distinct visual style. You cannot help but miss it even in a black and white film like the work he did on Caltiki for example. I know it wasn't just solely his film, but you still see a focused eye on and constructing the images and the way the lights work, the, the lighting works with each other in the shadows and that sort of thing. And I got a lot of that in Hercules in the Haunted World. For me, I knew about this movie only recently because it was covered on the B movie cast a few years back. And I thought, you know, I need to see this movie. And I, I hadn't seen it up to that point. I knew what it was like Rod. I'd read about it. And I mean, it's Christopher Lee. So of course it was always there. I, I knew about it, but it just wasn't something that I went out and, and saw it because honestly, and I've talked about this earlier on the show, I don't have a lot of background with the sword and sandal films. So it's part of the reason why I'm doing it this month is I want to learn more about them and experience some of them with people who enjoy these movies or enjoy particular films of this sub, sub, sub genre. And I enjoyed watching this. This was probably the first time I sat down to watch it for a concentrated start to finish, not just kind of skipping through to watch the Christopher Lee bits. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. It does have a lot of that Bava-esque lighting in the colors. I mean, especially when you're in hell. I mean, how can you not have fun with lighting when you're in hell, you know? Oh my God, that red. Exactly. <laughs> and his ability... No, 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 don't ever apologize. Interrupt, interrupt me at will. You have a better voice, trust me. But the uh, <laughs> the, the lighting that uh, was always a hallmark of Bava's color films is trick lighting, the way he would use lighting, and uh, a whole lot of, of amazing in-camera tricks. Yeah, you're right. The man painted beautiful movies, which is really, I guess, the best way to put it. I mean, because every shot you see, he's... For one reason or another, usually budgetary, is having to marshal his rather meager forces very carefully to craft a really good-looking image and tell the story and get you know and get everybody on stage and off. And uh, this movie is a really great example of just what can be done with very few means. I mean, he only had three weeks to shoot the thing. I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie by any stretch. But you're, you're right to focus in with Bava on colors because he uses colors and colored lighting to not just help tell the story, but to disguise things, to, you know, to draw your eye, as well as to emphasize character and story elements. He's, he's a master magician with this stuff, man, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Oh, absolutely. And one thing that struck me about this one, I think it was almost like 10 years ago now, they redid the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, because I'm always going to bring up Phantom of the Opera always. It's like Peter Cushing. But they redid the original <laughs> one, um, and they tinted the slides so that every set of scenes 
was a different color. Like the basement of the opera was all purple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the main stage was all like pink and everything. And this movie kind of reminded me of that because when Hercules gets to, I forget the name of the kingdom um, where his, his girlfriend is crazy. Everything is like that, that blue that, that I call it the Baba blue. Cause he was the only person who could ever get blue to look like that. But everything is very, very blue. And then you get into hell and suddenly everything is super, super red tinted. So it was just, he used, he seemed to, I don't know if it was intentional or if I'm making stuff up, but it seemed like he themed the colors in this one where he didn't necessarily do that in some of his other movies. No, you're not wrong in that respect. He definitely was using colors to uh, differentiate visually immediately different locations. That's a standard visual trick that any you know crafty, well-skilled director will pull. But he he would uh, he would go out of his way for this kind of stuff. You got to remember that uh, this was Baba's first color film as kind of accredited director. He'd done a lot of work in color. He was the cinematographer and cameraman on the first two Hercules films with Steve Reeves, but he was not the director. Uh, this is his first peplum, well, his first and only peplum as a, as accredited director. But by this time, uh, he had already helped shoot both those Hercules films as well as I think at least one other, if not two other. Uh, sword and sandal movies and so he was well versed and well used by other people to take those color techniques and place them in these different movies to make the storytelling that much easier for everybody else okay that makes sense the locations uh, it's all it's it's a studio film so it's it's shot on a set Uh, i always mispronounce it cinecita does anybody know if that's right the italian Uh, i believe it's uh cinecita I need to make sure I get that right because I'm referencing it in an upcoming commentary track I'm working on. Chinachita. So it's shot in a, in a set at a controlled location. It really gave him an opportunity, like you said, to paint with the lights, set the lighting where he wants to put it, put the gels up, that sort of thing. Uh, a film that I did earlier this month in Sword and Sandal Month was uh, The Witch's Curse. And that was actually shot in a bunch of caves. And I mean, that looks great too. But when you have the control in a studio environment to really just knock out the lighting and do what you want to do. It shows. I mean, he his mastery over this. I didn't realize this was his first color film. Uh, well, it's no, it's his first color film as credited director. As he credited, shot, okay. Yeah, as a director, uh, he was not just the director on this film, though. He was also the cinematographer and uh, the special effects coordinator, and yeah, he wore a lot of hats with this film. My understanding is that they use a lot of the sets from Hercules and the Conquest of Atlantis for this film as well, Gina Chitta. Yeah, actually, there's a long listing that Tim Lucas put together in his Baba book of various uh, set pieces and pieces of scenery that uh, were just, you know, used from previous films. And uh, the list is long. And honestly, about halfway through, I just began to chuckle looking it over going, yeah, 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 we'll just use whatever is around. (laughs) (laughs) The Corman School of Directing. Yeah. Well, I mean, Baba himself made the joke that, uh, and, and this was a joke and a bit of an exaggeration, but his joke was that he had like uh, four background flats and three or four columns that he had to make the entire film. And of course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but apparently not that much because uh, he really, I mean, like I say, he did not have a lot of money at his disposal. And it really was a question of, you know, what is available and what can I use? And It is possible to note that there are some scenes that look much more expansive on these sets because Baba is very carefully and craftily using mirrors to double up some some images so that it looks like, you know, the rooms are way bigger than they actually are. 
and uh, he's kind of using mirrors and kind of a, a, a forced perspective to uh, give you some uh, fake distance to make it look like there's there's more space in, than there really is. Uh, you will be able to catch how he very craftily uses uh, lighting gels, you know, different colored lights on columns in different in different sets to make it look like these are not the same columns you just saw. I swear, you know, these these are different things. <laughs> I promise this is not the same stuff, but you know, often it is. And he's just smartly using lighting to make it look like a different space. Hey, you work with what you got, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things I love about lower budget movies. Anyway, is that DIY, you've got to figure out how to make it work. And Bava having that eye, the ability to kind of make things look different with color and, and shadow and a little bit of fog here and there. It looks a lot more expensive than it really was. I, I'm sure the budget on this is a lot less than I would expect it to be. Uh, do do you, anybody have any numbers on that? I don't know if there's ever been a really uh, an official number put out, but whatever it is, it looks bigger than it probably has any right to be, and that's a testament to Baba. Yeah, I have no idea what the actual budget was. I think it might have been somewhere around seventeen dollars, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly, twenty maybe. And that's in 1961 dollars. <laughs> I actually think this one looks a little more expensive than some of the other ones because it felt like they threw all their money into like people and armor as opposed to like sets. And that may be true. Like I say, a lot of the a lot of the sets were you know leftovers from other films, things that were being repurposed. What Bava really needed to spend his time on, obviously, was making sure that his shots were lit properly. And that he was taking very careful time with the time he had. Because like I say, it was shot in three weeks. I mean, he had to get this done. There were no chances after the fact to kind of go back and redo this because everybody's off doing other things. And he's got to get this film in shape so that it can get dubbed for various you know, various different countries and get it out the door. So You mentioned the dubbing. Um, why is Christopher Lee's voice dubbed in this edition, but the Italian release, he actually does his own voice? What, what is up with that? Oh, my God. Um, it was so weird watching that movie. I'm like, that's not Christopher Lee. That's not what Christopher Lee sounds like. This is waking me out. Yeah. It is true. You know, Lee did a couple of different films with Bob, this and Whip in the Body. And in neither film did he get to dub his own voice. And, of course, part of that is that these movies were not shot with sound. All these movies are shot. All these Italian movies that you see, the 60s and 70s, for the most part, uh, are all shot without sound. And that's not this genre either. I mean, that's, you know, the spaghetti westerns, a lot of the Euro spies. I mean, that that was pretty common. Yeah, yeah. and that was done because it was an economical thing to not have to worry about uh, background sounds, just natural noises on the set, uh, planes flying overhead when you're outdoors, anything like that. You just were able to not worry about the audio and get the thing shot. And then all the sound was done in post-production. Smart move, understandable, but of course it does lend itself to problems later on because uh, unless an actor, and this is the tricky part, unless an actor has two things going, which is time and desire, he's not going to stick around. And when you are as busy as someone, say, like Christopher Lee, he's on to his next project, and he's not going to stick around for that extra week after you finally gotten the movie edited together to do the ADR. He's off. He's gone. And so uh, Christopher Lee in several uh, late career interviews has said that he really, really wishes that he had taken the time to do his own voice for the two Baba films he was in because it would add something to it. I mean, it would certainly add something to it. 
here's the thing from what I understand from Tim Lucas, the fellow who dubs Lee's voice in this movie is also the guy who's dubbing Reg Park's voice as Hercules. He's just doing a different voice. And so what you're talking about here is a movie that as much as we love this movie and I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that. Yeah, man, it would add a bit to it if we could hear that, that wonderful Christopher Lee baritone coming out of the screen at the same time. It just kills me that I know that apparently he did the Italian dub or, or language version because he was fluent. And this has happened to him in a couple of different films as well. Outside of Bava, there's a Sherlock Holmes film in Germany that <laughs> it's not yeah. his voice and it just doesn't work. And, and yeah, it's too bad. His voice is so distinctive. I mean, it's it's chilling. And to have his voice in the body of or, or coming out of the face of the villain in this film just would have made it that much but oh oh well coulda woulda shoulda somebody get that time machine going so we can go back in time and fix all our favorite movies right <laughs> <laughs> well i have a i have a question for both of you about uh, this genre and that is uh derek you said that you you've not dipped deeply into the the vast cool waters that are the uh, peplum genre uh, but right. I think I think you've enjoyed what you've seen, uh, Dominic. Sure. How, how how well versed in the genre are you? Honestly, not that well versed. Most of what I've seen is from mystery science theater. So I, in that case, what I have seen, I have seen a billion times because I watch mystery science theater over and over and over again. Hey, I understand. But that. really, only <laughs> really only the, the ones that they've done. And I because pro- I was raised in like a sci-fi fantasy family, so it's probably ones that like you know at some point in my life I've seen them, but I don't necessarily remember it. Right. So right. really, not too much experience. And honestly, I, when I sit and watch these movies, I am s- staring at the woman's costumes and the woman's hair. We'll get to that later with this movie. <laughs> well, you know, so 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 are we. But I mean, I'm not sure <laughs> for different reasons. I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. There, there's a, there, yeah. <laughs> What about you, man? What's your background with them? Oh, mine? Just like most subgenres of this type or, or, or genres, however you want to divide it up. I love so many different types of movies that it's kind of embarrassing at times because I will deep dive into anything I can get my hands on if it interests me. And, of course, at different times uh, over the past you know, 700 years of my life, I have definitely uh, dived into the peplum. And sometimes I've done it just as single-mindedly as I possibly can. So I'll get my hands on, say, one of those bizarre Mill Creek 50-packs of uh, Sword and Sand, or was it, I think it was called something like Warriors. And it's like, uh, yes, most of the prints look like they've been fed through a wood chipper and, and randomly rearranged in the cutting room, but it still, <laughs> it, it still gives you the chance to see these things. You know, as a kid, of course, occasionally these things would, would pop up on Saturday afternoons or Sunday afternoons. And you would get a sense of what they were and kind of really enjoy them. Of course, as a kid, I read a lot of fantasy, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert E. Howard, anything of that nature. And so, you know, I'm kind of a, one of the built-in love for this stuff just from enjoying it, you know, as a literary genre to begin with. So seeing the really good ones, um, because let's let's be honest, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big genre. There's a lot of films in it that were made. I mean, you know, they started cranking them out and there were just dozens upon dozens. But a lot of them, they have flashes of brilliance and long stretches of ennui and boredom. And you just kind of work. At times, you realize that there's a reason they built fast forward buttons. But the. 
but the <laughs> I love the genre, and I, I will say that even the worst peplum I've ever seen, and I've I've watched a lot by now. I would say, if I were to do some kind of consistent counting, you know, really think about it, I've probably seen in excess of thirty or thirty-five of them, if not more. And the the joy of it is that, as much as there's kind of a admittedly a same same quality after a certain point, because we can we you know we can talk very clearly about how a lot of plots used for sword and sandal movies are recycled western plots they're simply finding new ways to dress these things up and wedge in new and odd and strange you know like magical artifacts or odd sorcery or just whatever it may be to kind of keep things visually interesting and from being quite so obviously uh, something where somebody might accidentally stride on the screen wearing six guns these are <laughs> these are fun movies, and like I say, for me, I I know I've seen a lot of them. I would have it, it would be a harsh reckoning if somebody was holding a gun to my head and making me list off everyone I've seen because I don't remember. I'm so <laughs> but the joy the joy of them is is that even the worst one I've ever seen had enough in it that I was willing to you know follow it through to its end. I, I rarely punch out of the film before it's over with. Because I'm, I've got an illness anyway. I just can't. But the joy of <laughs> the joy of this genre is that it has so many visual things in it. So many things in it. Even a film that isn't as visually creative as this one uh, still has things in it that I enjoy seeing. I like watching people whack at each other with swords. I like uh, watching beautiful maiden lament the fact that the, the hideous minotaur beast is about to, you know, do unspeakable things to them that, as a child, you didn't really understand. And it's, 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 it's a blast. I, th- I think that not everybody, I mean, if you want to talk about a subgenre that has limited appeal. This is it. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I, I know that. I know that I mean, there's a huge appeal for spaghetti Westerns because they're Western. There's a much wider appeal for that. And there's a wide appeal for murder mystery thrillers, which, you know, Giallo are a part of. So you get that and it becomes a, a very easy fit for a lot of people, but most people are not going to slide very happily or easily into watching Peplum films because to the modern eye and by modern eye, I mean anybody post 1970, it's really kind of an odd thing to begin with to watch men wearing short skirts and toting swords proclaiming to the, to the invisible gods above them that I will reclaim my beloved. You know, whatever cliches you want to use, it's 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 a much narrower band of uh, acceptability. <laughs> let's say, I mean, most people consider these things silly, and, and you know, I I can't disagree with them, but that doesn't make me dislike them. Really, do you think that maybe part of that belief that some of these are kind of silly now is because we are at a point? In the Hollywood age, I suppose the blockbuster age, where if we want to see a sort of sorcery movie, Peter Jackson is cranking out Lord of the Rings movies. You know, we've got the big budget fantasy films, even like uh, Harry House's Clash of the Titans. I'm not going to recognize the, see- the remake. I mean, because we've got these bigger budget films now that have some of these elements, is there a place for the lower budget sword and sandal films of the past now that we've got something that looks a lot better in terms of? I don't know, production design. It doesn't look like it's been run through a road chipper, that sort of thing. You think that might be part of it? Yes and no, because like a lot of the people who I met 
Um, cause like Lord of the Rings came out when I was in college and I went to a college that did not have a lot of sci-fi fantasy people at it. I mean, it was I'm like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. They were more interested in drinking than anything else, but they all saw Lord of the Rings and they were like, Oh, that was great. And then they never saw another fantasy film ever again. Because Lord of the Rings, you went and you saw it because it was the thing to do. Clash of the Titans, you went the new one, which I know we're not talking about because, well, it sucked. But um, <laughs> but you went. The music's you saw okay. It. I'll give it that. But yeah, anyway. But you saw them because that was that was the thing to do. That was the new movie that was coming out. I actually think that the reason those movies aren't really so popular now. And again, because Lord of the Rings, honestly, while we can all look at it and say, oh, it was a great achievement of special effects and everything, the special effects are what we talk about. We don't talk about the story and stuff. And yeah. I think that's, yeah. honestly, it's a little more, like, I don't I don't want this to sound, like, insulting or anything, but it's a little more due to the political correctness culture nowadays. Rodney said that they were very similar to Westerns. I actually think it's the other way around, because oh. a lot of these stories are mythical, which means that Westerns kind of take their plot from them because it's basically, it's the hero's journey. All these movies are the hero's journey. Very true, very true. And we don't want those movies anymore. We don't want maidens being saved because maidens can save themselves nowadays. And mm, I would take issue with that just a little bit. I think we do want maidens saved. It's just that sometimes the maiden needs to be a guy so that it's not the same old, same old every time. Okay. Uh, I, I, I still think things get a little more morally complex. And those those movies are kind of a lot simpler. Oh, and most assuredly. Is, yeah. Remember, you are talking about, as you just said, myths. So we're talking about stories um, that were originally done as uh, you know, they were they were word of mouth. These were oral this was this is oral tradition stuff. So it had to be something very basic and very simple. And where you where you got uh, really interesting stuff is when you had the time to add detail. Yeah, exactly. But I also think, because one of the things I bemoan, and it, it comes from that, I, when you go to a movie theater and it's ironic watching, people, they can't give themselves over and just let, I think it was either on last, this um, Monster Kid radio that just came out last week or the one before where you were talking about wonder in the movies. I think that's getting lost. Because we don't, we can't just go to a movie and be all, and just shut down the brain and go with the adventure. And that is a large part of what makes Hercules and the Haunted World great. If you could just shut your mind off and go with it, it's amazing. That's what I think. I, I see exactly what you're talking about, and I agree to a large degree. There's always, mm -hmm. uh, there has always been a, a subset of people who go to see older movies in a theater, and they go there, and one of the things that they seem to be terrified of is for people around them to, to think that they take this stuff seriously. So they've got to play up their desire to see this stuff as a desire to make fun of it. And uh, you can ask my friends, I have a long history of verbal altercations with people in screenings of this type <laughs> where I explained to them that I came here to hear the film and not their mouths. Generally that's worked out well. There's been very little violence and, uh, <laughs> the, uh <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> but the, but, but the, the thing is under, under, understand that for, for a lot of these people who are doing that, they're, they're not, I mean, okay. Yeah. Most of them are clueless jerks. I'll grant you that. But a lot of it is people trying to find a way to enjoy this stuff that doesn't make them appear to be 
stupid. In other words, they're fearful of enjoying something that other people find stupid. And so they will also claim that it's stupid. It's this ridiculous little self-defense mode that people get into. And it's like, look, as I've said to a a few people in my life, if that's going to be your default setting for something like this, don't go. Let, <laughs> right. Let, right. let the people who let the people who want to actually enjoy seeing, you know, the beyond at a midnight screening or what the, the black cat or whatever. Let us enjoy this the way it was meant to be enjoyed and stop being a, a, a jerk about it. But I have some sympathy for it because I think they're just clueless morons and they're not really a, they're not self-aware enough. <laughs> they're not self-aware enough to understand that is childish as hell. But. That's just the way, uh, believe me, uh, I, I agree with you totally. And that's why, you know, getting people in a, in a modern era to fervently enjoy this kind of stuff. Yeah, Derek, I think you're right. Part of the, part of the problem these days is that I used to, I, a couple of years ago, I would have used the word spoiled because of the very large budget, incredibly well-crafted special effects that mm-hmm. went into something like Peter Jackson's films. And then he made The Hobbit, and I realized that there's no amount of money that could have made that movie good because they just turned it into a video game. And now it it has, for me, circled around with those movies to being a kind of cosmic joke that I can't take seriously while watching it. And it was made, you know, what, four years ago? Yeah, with a ton of money. So, yeah. Yeah. So, to my mind, what it is is as much as people may not be able to deal with the genre with, you know, without it being Dominique fine point without it being kind of a cultural touchstone, kind of a, a, a blockbuster moment. One of those things that everybody talks about. So everyone goes and sees it is you have to actually enjoy the tropes. You have to enjoy the things that are a part of this genre enough to want to go along with it, to give the film some rope, to let it play itself out, to, to, to forgive it. Some of the things that it's just not going to be capable of doing even in a movie like this, uh, for instance, I mean, there are criticisms that could be leveled against this film and will be leveled against them by me. And the most obvious one is that the movie is incredibly episodic. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but for someone coming to this movie cold, the fact that it has so many little separate sections that are obviously just little different, you know, little different stories, barely connected. It's like following a string of pearls all the way through the movie. Until you finally, until you finally circle back around to the clasp, and you're like, "Oh yeah, that's where we started. I remember that." Yeah, that's something that you kind of have to give this movie because it's not set up with a completely linear storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, it has it is episodic, piece by piece by piece. Well, that's something that I'm willing to point to and go, "Well, yeah, that you know, there's there are way better ways to script this out." But I don't care once I once you've watched too many of these movies, as I've watched too many of these movies. <laughs> having very having variations like that is part of the joy because hey man that's a nice change up i'm seeing it from a slightly different angle but for yeah. modern audiences if it's not blowing the doors off the the wall with just incredible special effects and being something that you can at least pretend that you're taking seriously amongst a crowd of people that you don't feel are going to deride you for enjoying it then you got problems yeah absolutely so with the uh you've seen more movies than either one of us in this subgenre right um do they all have that kind of fantasy there's a monster element do i have enough films out there to do another sword and sandal month next year oh my goodness yes well the thing yeah. is there are a, a lot of great 
monsters in a lot of Peplum films. Okay. Uh, but the good news is, is that, is that what you'll find is that uh, even if you exhaust or just can't find the ones that have those awesome monsters in them, the films that uh, don't necessarily have creatures in them can be just as much fun. There are a lot of them just tell military stories uh, where the gods are just those, you know, are just background things that are given lip service by the various people doing things. Those can be a lot of fun too. I mean, I don't have a quick number to hand you for, you know, what you're going to run, you know, how many of these movies you're going to run across that have like great monsters in them. But for everyone, I would say that probably, and this is just a quick guess for everyone that has like a great, like dragon or uh, a cool Medusa or something like that in it, there's probably two or three, you know, did not spend their budget in that direction. They decided to spend it on a bit more, you know, human spectacle to a degree. And, the good news is those are a lot of fun too. Not necessarily all of them are going to be what you want to do on a uh, monster kid radio, but uh, yeah, I'd say that you're going to find an even Oh man. If just a rough guesstimate, at least 24, 25 that have definitely got monsters in them of some sort. You mentioned the Medusa. You're talking about Perseus against the monsters or whatever. Uh, it's got a number of other titles as well. That, that Medusa in that is awesome. That's such oh, a yeah. great, oh. Goliath oh, and yeah. the Dragon. Goliath and the Dragon is a great one too. And there's a yeah. there's, there's a fantastic um, machiste film that oh man the name is escaping me. Somewhere around here I've got a I've got a copy of the Italian Italian DVD of it that uh, where uh, machiste at one point there's this there's this big lake monster that's like a reptile monster that he deals with. It's kind of dragonish, but it doesn't breathe fire. And like man, it's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Dominique, you spent a lot of time looking at the dresses and the women. <laughs> so do we, but <laughs> tell us more and slow. No. Wow. Okay. So I am totally a costume person and I absolutely adored every single costume in this movie. I want to wear every single costume in this movie. I'd even wear Hercules' tiny little skirt. Although everybody else would be the one to suffer for that. Um, I'm wearing but, it right now. All right. Too bad we don't have pictures. It's probably a good thing that everything just went echoey there again on that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because um, I think, um, again, if you notice when... They're in, I can never remember the name of the kingdom. I've seen this movie like 10 times in the past like month, and I can't remember the name of the kingdom that Dianara was supposed to be queen of. But you notice the women there, of course, wear the standard white. But as they get closer and closer to getting to hell, the costumes gradually get darker. If you notice, there was three shades of fabric in that to, to kind of, show that they were on the cusp of the netherworld but also they were woven together so it looked almost like chains because they were captive and bound on that island and they couldn't escape which i thought was an absolutely beautiful touch also the queen of that one her hair was extremely complicated which again is another caught up um and unable to escape and as you get actually into hell um hades daughter her costume was that dark navy blue black since she was from the depths. The, it seemed like it might have just been the print I had because I 
cannot for the life of me find a nice print of this movie, but the gold on her costume looked tarnished. But also, when she got up to the surface world, she kind of blended with the background, because again, we're back to that blue-black background. Um, also, uh, on a kind of costuming note, uh, the ghosts at the end were epic, and I love them. Yes. Oh, those are great. Those are great. I was trying to find out a little bit more about the costume designer on this, and granted, just because it's a subgenre I know very little about, I think listeners are probably getting tired of me saying that. Uh, you know, I don't recognize the names. I don't recognize all the titles. Although I guess the costume designer on this also did the costumes on the incredible movie The Puma Man from 1980. So I, you know, oh my god, for that's, real? That's what it's. That's, oh that's what the god. Oracle. That is the Internet Movie Database says. So, <laughs> hey, work is work, baby. Hey, man, you do what you got to do, right? Exactly. Oh wow. <laughs> and that's a movie. Yeah. Anyway, that is a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has the form and shape of a film. It is true. <laughs> I like the observation, though, that especially towards the end when she's, you know, in our world and her costume is kind of sort of the same of the same shade family, I suppose, of the background. She's not supposed to be there. She's supposed to be. Yeah, I like that's a really interesting observation. I do think the costumes in this are just fascinating. I mean, earlier this month, I'm talking about uh, the witch's curse and uh, Hercules against the moon men. And I feel like the costumes in those are kind of like, well, okay, it's a loincloth. Whereas something like this, because there's a little bit more money involved, probably not as much, but a little bit more money involved, or at least a little bit more care or creative budgeting. You do have an opportunity to create some interesting costumes and some visual interests there as well. And I mean, I'm digging it. And you mentioned the monsters at the end. Yeah. Oh, sign me up all day. I want those. I, yeah. I, want, I want action figures of these guys. And I, I say that a lot on the show. I would love an action figure of that monster or this monster. I want action figures of these guys, too. Yeah. Well, the great thing is that it's like they, they actually put, like, guys in the little ghost suits. It's not just, like, things hanging from the ceiling that they're wagging with a wire. So it actually looks it, – it makes it look like they're – I don't know. They're invested and they're haunting, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's a big difference in seeing someone who's, you know, obviously these are arms and fingers outstretched trying to grab Hercules and pull him backwards. These are things flying at you and they're clearly articulated. Yeah, it's nice stuff. It's good work. It's good work. I don't know who did the special effects on it, but uh, the special makeup effects involved here. And I like the special effects of Theseus being dragged into the lava. There's something that made me hold my breath about that scene more oh, so. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really part of it's, you know, the look on his face and the physical acting, but just the way he's fighting against this bubbling mess, it, it's pretty unnerving. And I really appreciated that too. Well, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. And what's even more amazing is, uh, finding out how they did that scene. Of course, there's all this information about how, uh, you know, all this stuff's done in camera. And of course, all these shots of hell and how, you know, how they were, you know, carefully, they were carefully done mats. And then there are all these overlays and miniatures set properly so that when it was filmed, but with that, those sequences with the, uh, the uh, boiling lava, what that was, was, uh, it was cornmeal. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, it was cornmeal. He lights it with red lights so that you can't tell that it's cornmeal because cornmeal is of course yellowish. And, uh, what it was is it was this great big pan that was underneath, you know, it was, it was this big pan and they heated it up and to get that bubbling effect, they put in pellets of, uh, is it 
uh, silicone or silica or something like that. In other words, something that would, once heated, kind of pop like that. So it looks like it's bubbling lava when lit with red. So you can put your actor in there and pull him under this stuff. And of course, it won't harm him. You know, it's stuff like that. When you find out how they did this, you're like, my God, that's genius. That doesn't take a lot of money. You just have to be clever enough to know how to make these effects work. It's amazing because there's so many things like that in the movie that that there, there are shots from a distance where you're looking at what looks to be, you know, ruins in the distance and some columns uh, in the foreground. And uh, most of that stuff is actually just are just uh, pictures that have been uh, attached to a glass frame and placed in front of the camera. And, and it looks right. It looks perfect. There, very rarely do you see any of the things that give it away. It's brilliant. It's great stuff. That's awesome. It goes back to that whole DIY thing that I love so much. And that actually makes me appreciate it even more knowing how they did it. Exactly. They didn't, you know, wasn't, I don't know, something they spent thousands of dollars on or a couple of weeks in a computer somewhere putting together CGI or whatever. It, It just, that's just cool. That's just cool. Okay, but can I say real fast, for the end when he starts fighting the ghosts and everything, did anybody else think Army of Darkness because I feel sure. like that that scene where Ash takes the book and then he took it wrong and all the dead people come up, I'm like, oh my god, they so lifted that from Hercules in the Haunted World. Oh yeah, yeah, they definitely did. I would not be surprised at all. No, Sam Raimi and his collaborators have always talked about how uh, there were a lot of things. I mean, their main inspiration for a lot of that stuff was the, the classic Ray Harryhausen stuff. But you know, they also you know have talked multiple times about how there are all these other movies that they drew things from as well, and it's hard to it's hard to miss the the, the very obvious visual imagery pulled from Hercules in the Haunted World. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a soundtrack guy. I'm, I want to mention the music. I actually adore the score to this. I think it's great from start to finish. I have it on my iPod. It has been released on CD. Armando uh, T. Trovajali, uh, <laughs> Trovajali, I suppose. I, I don't know. Is yeah. Uh, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I think I actually have a, a clue as to how to pronounce his name. You think you it, got this? It, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna take a stab at it, and then when I fail, you can point to me. Uh, I think it's Armando Trovajali. Well, see, you can roll your R's. I can't. It's like a birth defect. I'm not able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it can't. It can be learned. All you need is a, uh, a foreign language professor who stares at you over the rim of his glasses for about two years. Trust me. Yeah. Well, the music's great. Uh, I, I love it. And like I said, I've got it on my iPod. I listen to it off and on, and it, and it fits in there right with the fantasy film mold uh, of film scores. I dig it a lot. It, there's no surprise that Tarantino lifted some music, not necessarily from this film, but from Armando's catalog for uh, Kill Bill. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's it's good stuff. And, uh, yeah, I recommend people check that out if they get a chance. So I don't know if the CD is still available or not, but... I enjoyed it from start to finish, unlike some of the other movies that I've covered this month where my favorite part of the music was the opening credit sequence, <laughs> which which really, I mean, I there's something to be said for that, too. I mean, there's, there's some real craft that goes into creating a suite of music, but from start to finish, I really enjoyed this. Very, very epic, you know? Yeah, I would love to get a chance to just listen to this on its own. I think I'm going to have to seek that out because in the in the realm of of film in general you are the man who i have to bow to as far as soundtracks are concerned because i definitely i don't get me wrong i absolutely love soundtracks and i have i know i have uh more than i should probably admit to but 
I don't have the depth of knowledge and, the, and just the absolute love of it that you do. For me, it's it's something that I really enjoy, but it's much more of a sideline. And so I have to say that in the past and in this case, I have taken your advice and sought out ones that you have uh, praised in, in in certain ways. And so this one gets put to the list. Thank you very much. You call it a love for these things. Some others might call it an addiction, um, <laughs> a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I appreciate that. Uh, and I, and I hope I've steered you right a couple of times more than steering you wrong. So, well, here's the thing. This composer did a number of, uh, did a number of peplum and, you know, Hercules, the captive women, Gina metropolis, uh, slave of Rome. And so uh, by the time he did this one, from just looking at his credits, I mean, he's credited on eight or nine scores for this year alone. So my question then becomes, are, the, are we talking variations on different themes? Are we talking uh, similarities, but not necessarily overlap? Are we talking overlap? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I really don't know. Huh. Because, you know, there's not enough time in the... <laughs> I have so much free time with all these movies that I don't need to watch and all. The- <laughs> yes, yes. I think we share some of the same problems. Yes. Yeah. There's that addiction again, right? All right. <laughs> well, overall, I really enjoyed this movie. I think the comment that you made earlier about a lot of these movies feeling like a Western. I, I totally see that. I'm a huge fan of spaghetti Westerns. I mean, I've been really deep diving into spaghetti Westerns a lot lately, and I could totally see this. Take away a few of the mystical elements and maybe you know, put a cowboy hat on them, and you've got a Western-type story here. I see the, the connection, and I don't know if part of it's because you know this was an, the spaghetti Western was another subgenre that was very big for a very short period of time in Italy, like this subgenre was or what, but I I could totally see that in terms of the production value and just the way the story was constructed. Even the episodicness of it has that vibe for me. We haven't talked about Hercules though. We haven't talked about Reg Park. I don't know if I'd want to see him in a Western. No, no. Having, uh, having seen Steve Reeves, uh, in a Western, I can say that it is an odd switch. Uh, it's, 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 it's an odd thing. I'm not against muscle bound cowboys. I just have a hard time, uh, believing them as muscle bound cowboys. So, yeah, no, Reg Park is totally the, the heroic stance. I'm going to stand here and look pretty. I don't think he'd look good on a horse. Would the horse be able to hold him up? He's a big buff dude. He's like, (laughs) (laughs) he, uh, yes, indeed. Well, the, the thing about Reg Park is, um, as strange as it may seem, and this is something I only found out a couple of months ago uh, when I was uh, doing some research to cover another of his films, Reg Park only made six movies. That was it. Uh, he made uh, Hercules and the Captive Women, this movie, Samson in King Solomon's Mind, which was actually just another machiste film. And then he was in a movie that got renamed Hercules Prisoner of Evil, which I covered over on the Bloody Pit, and then Hercules the Avenger. And then he stopped. He has another credit in 1990, which was just this kind of uncredited thing he did in a, uh, in a film called The Grifters. But as far as his career is concerned, he really just did five Peplum films and then punched out and went and did his own thing for the rest of his life. Well, his own thing was bodybuilding, was Mr. Universe competitions and such, right? Yeah, and he, well, and he built his own business you know, connected to that. Reg Park was actually 
uh, one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's early mentors. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger throughout his life constantly name checked Reg Park as one of his mentors, one of the people who helped him and encouraged him and trained him. And so this was what Reg Park's life was all about. And he was very good at it. You can see um, Reg Park in um, Pumping Iron, or at least in some of the, uh, the extraneous stuff that got kind of trimmed out. And you can see it in deleted scenes and stuff like that. He knew, he knew what his strengths were and he played to them. Now, that's not to say that I don't enjoy him in these movies because I do enjoy him. He's not perfect by any stretch, but then almost all of these muscle-bound guys, I mean, there's a reason they're there, and it's not because they went to, you know, they went to, to study the method or anything. <laughs> so, but I, th- I think he's quite good. Um, the real shock was uh, when, we, when uh, Adrian and I covered uh, Hercules Prisoner of Evil, which is actually uh, – uh, an Ursus film, if that makes any difference whatsoever. Once once these films came to America, they were all Hercules films because we're dumb Americans and that's the way it's got to be, right? Right. <laughs> but one of the things that's great about Reg Park in all of his muscle man roles is that he's excellent in the physicality of the role. He never looks overly stiff to me. When in action, when in motion, when doing what he needs to do, He's believable. He's not one of those guys who does a whole lot of just standing and flexing because, oh, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. Oh, that's right. We're filming. He's good. He looks good doing action on screen instead of looking like someone who's like, oh, I have to bend now. This this is painful. He gets he gets across the physicality of the character pretty effectively. And with an action, you know, with an action hero, that's, you know, that's more than 50 percent of what you really kind of need to do. When something like this, sure. I mean, I, I didn't hear most of what you just said because I was just standing here and flexing. But I, I think, I, I think you're right. You know, strangely, Derek, that's how I always picture you. <laughs> that's how I've been podcasting for this long. You know, I gotta keep in. Ch- <laughs> wow. My, my standard look is, you know, with me with one finger, two knuckles deep into one nostril, and you just flex. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. And once again, so good that this is an audio podcast and not a YouTube thing. That's just, that's really good. Yeah. Um, yep. Yes. Yes. But I, but I, I am curious. I, I know that you guys have not seen like oodles of these films, but what do you think of the various performances in it? Because as with all these movies, I mean, there are variable levels of performance. Okay. Yes. Obviously Christopher Lee is like on point as the bad guy. And that's kind of a given, but I was really really happy the second male lead the fellow who plays uh, hercules's i guess sidekick but to be to be kind of insulting about it i really i think that uh, the guy who plays theseus uh, george artisan is quite good as is often the case in a lot of these movies i think uh he's you know a better actor than the lead but i also really got a kick out of i think the uh, the two main female actresses are quite good in this as well. Uh, yeah, I I liked um, the guy who played Theseus quite a bit. Okay, I'm just going to say this. If I was ever a Greek baddie, I would want this Theseus to be my hero. Because all, of, all I would have to say is, look, a girl, and then capture him. Um. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> talk about talk about a man led around by his... Uh, Loincloth. Loincloth. Yes. yes. There <laughs> But to play that kind of character, you have to have a lot of the kind of charm and appeal not to just come off as a smarmy jerk. And I think he did that really well. Because there was no point when I thought, oh, my God, that guy's a scumbag. I just 
just no, he's cool. He's doing his thing. But I almost wonder if they didn't write it like that, knowing that Reg Park was going to be Hercules. So they kind of had to put a little more into the psychic. It's very possible that was that was kind of considered that was uh, that seems to have been considering how reoccurring that kind of thing is where the the second lead the sidekick is almost always a better actor and in a lot of these movies you'll notice again and again that some of if not uh, maybe a little more than necessary of the dramatic weight of the story is kind of carried by the second lead. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that was the case here. Definitely. I think so too. Uh, George Artisan, I, Artisan, excuse me, George Artisan. Like I said earlier, I've been doing a lot of deep diving into spaghetti westerns. So I see him in a handful of spaghetti westerns and I like him in those things like Grand Canyon Massacre or, and I need to see this one. It's on my list. I need to track down because it's got a great title. May God forgive you, but I won't. So <laughs> well, well, that, that is a good title. Uh, spaghetti westerns have the best titles. Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I see him in a lot of these, uh, those types of movies and I've enjoyed him as a cowboy. I've enjoyed him in that environment. I do like him in a cowboy hat. I think he's a much better actor than, well, a lot of the people in this movie. <laughs> Agreed. And it's interesting. This is only what his fourth film. So he's pretty early in his career here, but he would go on to do a number of other movies, including something now I need to see called Catarsis. Catarsis. In 1963, because he and Christopher Lee are in it together again. And it's another fantasy kind of sort of thing. So I would love to get my hands on that and see how that goes. Christopher Lee plays a character named Mephistopheles in that. So, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, he was also in in several Eurospy films in the 60s, which, of course, is always a big thing for me as well. Yeah, you and I need to talk about Eurospy stuff at some point. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) I love that stuff. There's not room for it on Monster Kid Radio, but I've got some ideas. We'll talk later. Uh, (laughs) And that, listeners, is what I'm going to call a tease. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, Anyway, George Artisan, good guy. And then what about the comic relief? What did you think about him? Uh, Franco, you want to try to take his name, Rod? Because you seem better. Oh, man. Okay, I'll take a stab. But I've not tried this one before. I, try, I I definitely had tried the composer because you know I knew I'm talking to Derek. That's going to come up. But yeah, um, <laughs> let's see. It's Franco uh, Giacobini, I think. Sure. Okay. At <laughs> okay. least I'm pretty sure that's pretty close. So yeah, I would love to know. I w- I cannot wait to find out what the two of you think about uh, the comic relief played by this fellow, Telemachus. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 yes, or in this case, oh my Zeus, oh my Zeus. Yeah, oh. <laughs> but I'm sorry. When we again we get to the island of the cursed women, and I'm like, just kill that guy, just kill him, just kill, <laughs> just kill that guy. Get, get the kid out and just kill him. You can leave him behind. <laughs> I did not like that guy at all. I'm sure he's a fine actor, but I, I think the writing is what bugged me on that character. Because, I mean, the actor, I think if you put him in something else, he'd be funny, but it just, ugh, I couldn't stand him in this movie. Completely concur, completely agree. Uh, one interesting tidbit to throw out there before we uh, we let we let Derek light into him um, <laughs> is that um, there is a difference in the performance and in the, the kind of, I guess we call it, level of humor between the English dub and the Italian version of the film. In the Italian version, he's not nearly as irritating a character. Um, there's actually kind of an underlying level of irony or maybe a little bit of uh, 
sadness. It's it's gallows humor at times. He's so scared at times. If you're just going by the English dub, smother him. Smother him now. Put a pillow over his head. Move forward. Derek, uh, I don't know where you <laughs> fall on the Telemachus live or die state. <laughs> well, my background when it comes to um, fantasy stories, Robert E. Howard is my, my jam. I love my Robert E. Howard. I, I love my fantasy to be a little bit more grim and gritty, a little bit more dark. And there's usually not a lot of room for some near slapstick humor and that kind of thing. So just kind of by default, I'm not a big fan of this character in this film. I'm sure he's a fine actor. And I think I'd like to maybe see the Italian dub of, of his performance. Because I'm wondering if it might be played a little bit more, I don't know, a little less over the top might be downplayed a little bit again it keeping is. in mind this was shifted over or shipped over to uh you know an american audience i don't know if this speaks to what the italian producers thought of the american audience you have to have this kind of over the top oh no kind of you know performance you know for those dumb americans over there or what i don't know if there's something there but i just i don't like that over the top silliness just just by default. Now, I respect and I appreciate it, and I know a lot of people do, and, and good for them, but for my money, I don't necessarily need him in this. I wouldn't mind another little, you know, another sidekick type. I mean, it does have that, you know, we're, we're going to get some people together and go save the, the world or save the girl kind of thing vibe. This whole movie needs to have that, but I don't need to have the, the little sidekick guy who's just there to be funny. Understandable. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. No, it does, I think, because what we're talking about here is a film that they felt, okay, we're, we're going to Hades. Let's have a little lightness. Let's have at least a character who the, the audience can identify with that'll give us a little bit of uh, an out every now and then if it gets a little too dark. And that's a good instinct. Uh, but the problem is humor is the hardest thing to recommend to anyone else. I mean, if you've ever mm-hmm. tried to recommend comedies to someone else, you know that if you don't have a, a really strong bead on someone else's sense of humor and what they find amusing, recommending uh, comedic films to someone, is, it's a landmine field, man. It's terrible. And so yeah. uh, what I find funny, someone else may find to be the most grating thing in the world. And so what we're talking about here, as in a lot of Peplum, is they go broad. And uh, when you go broad, um, you, to, to my mind, you automatically cut a lot of your audience out because a lot of your audience is at best, they're not going to like it. And you just better hope that they can ignore that aspect of it and enjoy what's around. In this case, I kind of can. I kind of can ignore him enough to not be bothered but uh, I think they use him uh, effectively once they've got him separated off and sat on the ship to guard the golden apple. I think that works okay. Yeah. But, uh, because then, you know, his reactions, I mean, he's, he's in hell. I mean, this is the center of the earth. This is Hades, right? So all, all his reactions, all his reactions really are, you know, kind of in the spirit of just how terrified the character should be. But yeah, yeah. Less, Less Telemachus is more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and humor is so cultural as well. I mean, it's what's funny to one culture or, or a group of people is not going to be funny to a different you know, part of the world. So, I mean, I, again, you, you're dealing with that. And it's just hard. I mean, I've gotten to the point to where my friends 
typically don't recommend comedies to me at all because my sense of humor is not <laughs> very broad. I'm, I'm not. If you were to ask me what my favorite comedy film is, I, I would have a really hard time telling you what it is because I, I don't know if I have one. I have movies that I like to sit and watch that might have a comedic element to them and I'll laugh along with them. But in the end, it's an action movie with comedy or a horror movie with comedy. It's not a comedy film. And, and that's maybe a thing with me and maybe why I don't respond to that funny little sidekick guy. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that is an interesting question because, for instance, recently some we I got into a discussion with friends about favorite comedy film. I, I told them, and I thought this was going to be a bit more controversial than it turned out to be. But I said, "Well, I got to tell you, I think my two favorite comedy films are all of all time are Bringing Up Baby with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and Raising Arizona." Okay. With both of those films, I can watch them on an endless loop, and I would laugh at the same spot every time. Because I've tested it. <laughs> because I've watched those films for too many times. But like I say, it's so completely subjective. And yeah. humor is so difficult to recommend to someone else. Because I know people I know people who uh, could sit and watch Raising Arizona and just not get it. Maybe there's a couple of things that it's funny. And that's fine. It, it doesn't bother me that you know everyone's sense of humor is so variable from person to person. But... It does belie that thought that there are things that are universal. You know, uh, hmm. it, it does kind of push you into the position of realizing maybe that's not true. Maybe some things just aren't funny to someone simply because of the chemical makeup of their brain or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't see a lot of at least the limited movies that I've seen. I haven't seen a lot of that goofy sidekick in some of the other films in this subgenre, the previous two movies that I've talked about this month on the show, which is weird for me to say, because as we're recording this listeners, you guys haven't heard that yet. I actually just recorded that session yesterday, but trust me, by the time you get to this on the show, I will have talked about a couple of other movies with somebody else. And there wasn't that goofy sidekick type in those movies. So I'm encouraged that I'm not going to run into that every single time I pop in a, a sword and sandal film. Yeah, you won't. But I am encouraged that it seems like there's a lot more monsters out there in these sword and sandal movies that I'm looking forward to explore even more now. And yeah, I think I can commit there will be another sword and sandal month sometime next year as well. Because, I mean, if they're all half as good as Hercules in the Haunted World, I'm, I'm in. I'm interested. Well, be aware. A lot of them <laughs> will be half as good. So <laughs> understand that up front. <laughs> Because if we haven't stated it before, let's state clearly, uh, at least in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of fans of the genre, this is one of the five best of the genre. This is really exceptional. Some people even put it at yeah. the top of the list. So Wow. It's because of Christopher Lee and that haircut, right? Well, that haircut goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, it is simply because it is so beautifully cracked. It is... Yeah. You know, there are a lot of threads that you can pull in this movie and, and you begin to realize just how much of the story that we're being told seems to have been concocted after the movie was shot. Uh, in other words, I'm pretty sure, along with uh, uh, Tim Lucas's rather detailed discussion of this film in his book, uh, I'm pretty sure that they shot a very different structured story when they made the film. And then in the editing they found the story that, that we're being told. I think there are a lot of little threads you can tug on and realize that this movie probably 
was telling a very different tale uh, when they shot it because a lot sure. of the, yeah because a lot of things that were being given a lot of the information dump and you know dialogue that, that is given to us is done where the characters back to you know is done <laughs> over other information little bits and pieces here and there the episodic nature of the movie kind of lends itself to slight rearranging of elements and kind of changing details here and there but uh, that doesn't change the fact that what we have here the way it's constructed the way it's put together is just exceptional and it and it does constantly end up in that you know in a top five list for fans of the genre so yeah. given how they did the audio the dialogue i wouldn't be surprised if what they originally shot ended up getting tweaked a lot in the dubbing sessions and depending on what country the film was going to go to after that i wouldn't be surprised if the story is subtly different <laughs> depending on what language you're listening to so i'm not surprised to hear that at all well, yeah, one of my favorite little creepy moments in the film, and there's just no way to forget. You'll already have a visual. Both of you will have a visual as soon as I say this. The vines that bleed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, in the English version, we're told that uh, those vines are inhabited by the souls of the dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah. in the Italian in the Italian version, that is that information is not there. They're they're not casting those vines as you know holding human souls or anything like that. They're just, they're not explained. It's just another creepy ass thing. <laughs> it's just another thing. That it, makes that sense, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I like the English version better. You know, I like the English version better too. But you're right. They just they just mention it though, and then they never readdress it. Like, oh, those are the human souls. Let's cut another one. You know, just like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and it's not even mentioned again. So I, I don't know what I like better. You know, that we're told this is what it is, or it's just, yeah, it's this creepy. is hell, and things are creepy here. I don't know which I like better now. But it is just like I say. I mean, there's uh, one of the very many differences, just the impressions that you would get watching this film from one version to another. Fascinating stuff. And I've had a great time chatting about it with you. Any closing thoughts or anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure we get in? Uh, Rodney, go ahead, because there was something I was going to say, but I forgot what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, closing thoughts. Uh, Hercules in the Haunted World, any way that you do see this, hopefully you get to see it widescreen. It's worth your time. If you have an interest, just in Christopher Lee, if you actually uh, have never looked at any of these sword and sandal films, this is a good place to start. Uh, it might be a devastating one for you because visually this one is much more interesting than a lot of others, but this one will entertain you. I guarantee this is a fun movie, man. There's so much that happens in it, but the running time just flies by. I absolutely adore this movie. Um, it's beautiful. It's as always, Bava manages to make it vaguely Gothic because that's what he does. But I also like this one a lot better than others because it is a much more human story, I think. While the other Pablum films kind of have the human elements in them by necessity, it's always kind of secondary to the fantasy stuff, whereas this one is kind of two or three people facing the harrows of hell and having to deal with, oh, no, my friend just died and I did this and everything. And I think that as a really deep emotional level to it, which is one of the things that makes it a better film. So, yeah, everybody go out and watch it if you haven't seen it. Here, here. <laughs> and I would just like I, I, to no, add. I uh, yeah, I would ahead. like to add one thing uh, so that I can make sure that this happens. I'm more than willing to spend money, plenty of money, on a good Blu-ray of this film. I would just like to put that out there to anybody listening. 
who might be in a position who might be in a position to make a blu-ray of this to like you don't even have to pack it with extras necessarily but please please let's get a high def version of this film out there on the market please 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 Please, I don't please, know please. who. Yeah, I don't know who has the rights to this. I mean, it has turned up in a lot, number of the Mill Creek sets, which may mean it's in the public domain. I don't know if it really is or not. But if it's if it's something that somebody has access to, please take those prints, transfer them, make them look good. I know a couple of people that might want to talk about them on a commentary. I'm just saying that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it would just look gorgeous. I need a clean print for the costumes. I can't recreate those costumes properly until somebody gets me a clean print. Somebody please do it. There we go. There we go. Well, <laughs> I agree with I agree with Rodney. I agree with Dominique. I, I, I think it's a great film. I think it's something that people need to see. I think it's got some great monsters. We didn't even talk about the big stone guy in there. I mean, there's some good monster and, oh, yeah. and fantasy elements in here. We got the... I love that lava scene, man. That's just moving. I love the music. Big fan of this one. Highly recommended. We didn't even talk about... There's so much more to talk about on this film, but... I know, there really is. Listeners, go check it out for yourself, and then call into the voicemail line at Monster Kid Radio, and we'll talk some more about the movie. How about that? I want to thank my guests for being part of the show this week. I love bringing people together and, and talking about these movies with people who love them. I want to tell people where they can find uh, Dominique. She can be found at the University of the Bazaar.wordpress.com. She's a local. She's in the Portland, Oregon area with me. So you may run into her at various screenings or geek events, even though we haven't had it happen in real time yet. By the time you hear this, she will have been a panelist with me at Rose City Comic Con. Uh, so she's around. Check her out and check out her fiction. She's really, really good. Thank you. And Rod can be found at the Nashi Cast, nashicast.blogspot.com. And you've got a couple other websites as well, right? Uh, well, the main one is uh, the blog, The Bloody Pit of Rod, and all things kind of descend from that. You can find links to all of the mad things that I'm involved with right off of that page. Me babbling about whatever I'm thinking about right then. So, yeah. I'll make sure there's links to all of this in the show notes. And, of course, yeah, I mentioned commentaries. Rod's been involved in some commentary tracks for some recent Paul Nashy Blu-ray releases, which is awesome and inspiring. So check those out. What are the movies you've done so far that are out? My goodness. For Mondo Macabro, we did uh, Paul Nashy's uh, directorial debut, Inquisition. And then uh, for the first uh, Nashy Blu-ray set put out by Scream Factory, we did Man, Night of the Werewolf, Horror Rises from the Tomb, and Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Three fantastic Paul Nashie films. There, there are going to be more uh, Blu-ray releases of Paul Nashie films in the rest of this year, and uh, that is fantastic news, folks. More not more Nashie on Blu-ray is uh, more joy in high def. So, yeah. <laughs> when, when you're saying we've done that, there's a few with your co-host from the Nashie cast, Troy Gwynn, right? Oh well, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not just. Whoa, man. Let me. Yeah, let me back up. It's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I got you covered, man. I got ooh, you covered. Ooh, Troy, th- I've never talked to me. Troy directly. No, I got you, man. I've never talked to Troy directly, but I, I hear him in my ears every time you put out a show. So, well, know, Troy, got to represent. Troy has the most distinct voice in podcasting. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Troy has one of the most amazing, resonant, deep voices in the history of the planet, and uh, it's kind of creepy at times. But Troy, <laughs> Troy's been my co-host. <laughs> Troy's been my co-host for the past seven years on the Nashi cast. And he and I also uh, do a bunch of podcasts together on uh, my other show, the bloody pit where, uh, where generally he and I talk about uh, Godzilla films and giant monster films. We, we've just done an episode on the first Gamera movie and, and Troy, Troy, yeah, Troy and I do those commentary tracks for about Paul, on Paul Nashi films uh, together. 
and uh, oh, we did another one too. We did uh, it's already out. The uh, we did uh, we got to stretch out and we covered. Uh, we did a commentary track for one of Amanda Diasorio's films, The, the Laurelized Grasp, which uh, Scott oh, that's Backer right. Did. Yeah, so which I love. I adore that film so much. Oh, that's it's great. such it's such a great film. It's just an amazing amalgam of uh, a Germanic myth and a fairy tale and such a such an amazing little movie. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, we'll definitely have you both back on in the future talking about other movies. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty that we can talk about. I was telling Rod before we started recording that we've got some more uh, Margarita films to get to uh, the, the Gamma One films. It's Gamma One, right? Uh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, definitely the Gamma One films. There were uh, four of them and we've only done one. I know we've got three more to get through and then we'll find other things too. And Dominique, we got to find some more movies to talk about you and me. Oh, we will. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> titofrod.blogspot.com that's where you're going to want to go to find out about what Rod Barnett's up to there's a link from here to the NashiCast website as well as everything else he's got going on go check him out and then again Dominique can be found at the University of the wordpress.com where she posts about horror stuff as well as the occasional posts about Batman check them both out and let them know that you heard them here on monster kid radio big thanks to Dominique and to Rod for being part of the show this week Rod I swear you and I got to get back together soon to do the rest of the Antonio Margariti Gamma one films and Dominique I'll see you here in a couple of weeks at the Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu con on 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 do you believe in ghosts This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a burdelac. Black Sabbath, as ancient a superstition, as modern as the telephone. How nice you look with that towel around you. You always did have a beautiful body. Beautiful. A body to drive someone crazy. Who are you? Who? Black Sabbath. The bare truth about the unbelievable, such as the brilliant beauty of a priceless jewel, that holds within the body of a buzzing fly, a vengeful woman's murderous spirit. <coughs> Only on the seventh night of the seventh full moon can the living see the lifeless undead. I am hungry. Is he man? Or vampire? An adventure into black magic that goes beyond the boundaries of the supernatural. And a man's devoted love is welcomed by a woman's deadly lust for his blood.
The supermates couldn't stop it. It's amazing. It's incredible. The fire and water network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf. With only one desire in my mind. To kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula. But I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. You see before you a man who has lived for centuries. Kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed the evil of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. 4D. 4D. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. You can't let them. Get out of there first. Blast them now. Drop now. You've got to do it. Dad, listen to me. From the remotest reaches of the cosmos, an unknown force is overpowering mankind. I can't get enough buildup. We'll never get off the ground. Countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Fire. The greatest threat in outer space. The war of the planets. You can't stop them. Lazar's no good. You can't stop them. They're lights, but they've got shape. They're more than lights. When you have them within, you experience a power of mind beyond all comprehension. Working feverishly, courageous astronauts vainly search for a transparent enemy that has overtaken their space station, paralyzing every form of life and motion. And prepare for immediate evacuation of all space installations. All the forces on Earth have been mobilized to combat this invisible, supernatural, deadly power that is crippling man's progress in space. No signs of rigor mortis. No signs of decay or corruption. Man's willpower, his will to live, is being crushed. It's a battle of wits against a subtle enemy for which there is no defense. You can't do that. It's not human. You're crazy. You too will be fascinated, awed, gripped, mesmerized, enslaved by the will of the deadly diaphanoids. What is it you want? Friendship. I know how to deal with them, General. 
I'm going to call radiation control. Wait, Mike. It's a desperate fight, but a handful of fearless spacemen search for every sign, for every face that might hide the seed, the spawn of death that threatens to destroy the Earth. We don't know whether we should treat them as living or dead, whether to do biopsy or autopsy. The apparatus is not required. I don't think that's for you to decide. I will do the thinking, Commander. It's a power of gigantic proportion. It corrodes the very will of mankind. This is a film you cannot miss. Man, pitched against the unknown, the incredible, the war of the planets. The war of the planets. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for Cast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now what is it that qualifies two southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain, and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi we, Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like yeah. melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, Yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Monster Kids know that we have a Facebook presence, right? Well, head over to Facebook and look up Monster Kid Radio. We have a page and a group. And in the group, I'm trying to get a conversation going, and I've got a poll set up asking Facebook users who listen to Monster Kid Radio to indicate where they're from, specifically what state, or if you're not in the U.S., what part of the world you're in. The reason for this is because I was contacted a few weeks ago by somebody in Missouri who wanted to know if there was anybody that I knew in the Missouri area where he could meet up in person and do their own kind of monster meetup. A monster kid radio crash, perhaps? Something along those lines. You know, when I flip through the pages of old famous monsters of Filmland magazine and magazines like that, I see the classifieds for pen pals, people looking to connect in person, or at least writing, I, I is that a step above email? I don't know, but I just love the idea of people trying to connect over being a monster kid. So, if you're on Facebook, please consider liking the page, joining the group, and once you're in the group, participate in the poll. And if you see somebody in your area, man, look them up, chat them up, 
and have a meetup. Of course, you can get to our Facebook page from our website over at monsterkidradio.net. We've got links to that as well as our contact information. Again, our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. 503-4795-MKR. Now, speaking of feedback... I got an email from somebody named Scott. No, it's not Scott Morris who's been on the show. I don't know Scott's last name here because it didn't come through. It just says Scott and then his email address. And I'm not going to read his email address on the show. Anyway, this is what he sent me. So what show had music by John Williams, Alexander Courage, Lee Stevens, and Hans Chase Alter? Directors like Nathan Duran. Art director like Robert Kinoshita. Makeup by John Chambers. Special effects by the Lineker Brothers. Monster Kid actors like John Carradine and Michael Rennie. Not to mention a slew of monsters. Why? Lost in space, of course. And though things fell apart in season two because of the Batman craze, the first season was mostly terrific, with the first five episodes easily competing with any George Pal film. Recently remastered in Razor Sharp HD, it's worth a talk by you guys. <laughs> He's absolutely right. You know, we've never talked about Lost in Space here on the show. What do you guys and y'all think? Should we do a Lost in Space episode or series of episodes? I wouldn't even know where to begin because I'm going to be honest, I don't have a lot of Lost in Space in my background. Yeah, I've seen the episodes. I've seen the TV shows. Don't start writing in just yet. I have seen the show. Have I seen them in order? No. Do I know enough about the show to kind of know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe. But it might be kind of fun to revisit it, especially season one, especially when things were a little less Batman-y, which makes sense. I did kind of change when Batman hit and everything went, well, Batman-y, which is fine. I mean, I'm sure it's an adjective that... Dominique Lamsey's uses all the time. There's nothing wrong with being a little Batman-y, but yeah, Lost in Space Season 1, I digress. Lost in Space Season 1, I would love to at least talk about that and talk about some of the Monster Kid elements. I knew that John Williams was involved with some of the music there. I had no idea. I never really looked. But Alexander Courage from Star Trek, Hans J. Salter, I mean, that guy, uh, I mean, it's something we should probably talk about here on the show. So I'll put that on the list. I've got a huge list of potential topics to talk about. That's going to be one of them. So thank you for writing in. I really, really appreciate it. That's such a good idea. So cool. Okay. Uh, a couple other things coming up. We've got a link to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Cthulhu Con, Con over Con, on Con, our Con, website Con, at monsterkidradio.net. The reason there's a link to this is because, one, I love this festival. I've been going to this thing. Pretty much every year that I've lived here in the Portland, Oregon area, with the exception of the first year we were here, because, well, I just didn't know any better. But <laughs> it's something that I go to every year. In my mind, the Halloween season doesn't typically kick in until I've had a chance to spend a couple, three days at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon, with my fellow lurkers and just getting exposed to as many Lovecraftian delights as possible. In recent years, I've been an official guest at the festival. I'm going to be a guest again this year. Now, as of this recording, there's no announcement about what panels are happening. I'm assuming I'm going to be a panelist on something. I'm not sure what yet, but as soon as I find out, I'll let you guys and gals know, both on Facebook and here on the show. Chris McMillan, who's a regular here on the show, he's going to be a guest as well, as is Dominique Lamzies. And I'm pretty sure all three of us don't charge for autographs. So I'm just saying, <laughs> okay, I, I can't really speak for them. This year's big special guests... F. Paul Wilson, the man behind The Keep and the Repairman Jack novels, and it was just announced that actor Courtney Gaines is going to be a special guest here at the festival as well. You might know him from Children of the Corn and The Burbs. 
Of course, CXP Lovecraft Historical Society is going to be well represented. I believe they're doing a live performance of one of their Dark Adventure Radio Theater presentations, which... Oh, man, that's good stuff. Uh, Tim Urin's going to be there. He is one half of the comedy team, Chuck and Dexter. I don't think they're still active, but he's pretty darn funny and very talented. I know he was involved in the 2011 short film, The Curse of Yig, which is based on a Lovecraft story that I really like. And the short, it's very well done, very interesting, and very well performed little long but you know overall a very very good short and i'm excited to run into him and, and chat with him a little bit more author cody goodfellow is going to be there scott glancy one of the guys behind delta green i mean he's going to be there so this is going to be a good time if you're going to be there let me know i would love to meet up with you and just talk monsters lovecraft or both of course also on the website there will be a link to everything that we've talked about here on the show just check out the show notes and away you go Let's talk about what's happening next week. Well, next week is still in the month of September, which means there's still time for Sword and Sandal and Monsters. I've got returning guest Alan Trump coming back to Monster Kid Radio. And, you know, I met him in person at a previous Lovecraft Film Festival. Uh, he's a great guy. I also ran into him at Monster Bash. It's always good to chat with Alan, and I'm looking forward to bringing a conversation with him to the show when he and I tackle... A 1961 film that's had many different names. We're choosing to go with Goliath and the Vampires. virgins and alluring concubines. I will free Julia and all of the others, and those responsible will pay for their crimes. Into waters abounding with vicious killers of the deep goes Goliath to reach the sea-protected city of the vampires. Here, men die by the cruelest of executions. A beautiful woman is the devil's own temptress, exploiting the young and innocent. Then justice threatens her with the most horrifying of deaths. Please, Goliath, save me. You can do it. Help! In the name of the Sultan, I declare you under arrest. Don't resist us. But even the might of Goliath is not always enough to match the black magic powers of Cobra. Here's a little secret. I'm recording with Alan this weekend. I'm sure the recording's going to be fine. But I haven't seen the film yet. This is one I've not had a chance to view. In fact, this month has been pretty exciting. I haven't seen any of these movies from start to finish prior to talking about them here on the show. So I'm looking forward to checking out the movie and then meeting up with Alan online to chat about the film and then bringing that conversation to you next week here on Monster Kid Radio. 
And finally, before we wrap up, I just want to send a special shout out to a couple of listeners on the show. I, I, well, obviously, one of them's a guest as well, Rod Barnett. And then Seb Godain, who's been on the show in the past. You know, this past week, it's been interesting in the real life of, of Derek M. Cook. You know, when I'm not podcasting or watching lots of movies, I got a day job. You know, I'm doing my thing. I, I've got stuff to do, responsibilities, all that, you know, being a grown up thing. So, unsolicited. When people leave posts on Facebook just complimenting what I'm doing here on Monster Kid Radio, it means a lot. So just a special shout out to you two guys. Thank you so much. And then a big shout out to Chris Mounts as well because on a regular basis he will post what podcasts he's listened to for the week and then pick a couple that were his favorites. And he included what Chris and I have been doing with the Sword and Sandal films, the previous two episodes of Monster Kid Radio, in his shout-out this past week as well. And again, just thank you so much. You know, as a podcaster, we thrive on feedback and the interaction online and just knowing that there are people out there enjoying what we're doing. So thank you for being part of, well, what I do here. On that note, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All the original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Malaguena Stomp. It comes from the album C.O. Tuvia Uno Longboard. It's from the band Five Fingers with Parasol. They're from Castillon, Spain. You can find them at fivefingers.bandcamp.com. That's the number five, and then fingers spelled out, .bandcamp.com. Or look them up as five, spelled out, fingers with parasol on Facebook. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. However you track them down, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 